You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. I would like to turn our attention to scriptures. As I mentioned, we're starting a new series on the local church. I'm going to read for us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's turn our Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at how the gospel creates the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in words, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we did not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Jacob. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles then. Uh, And as we're turning there, I just want to thank Jacob for him and the team, all the work that they've done on this counseling ministry. Just to reiterate, uh, there's no change in uh, pastoral care and how pastors care for people and provide counsel and walk alongside those. Um, That's something we've done as a church for years, and we're not changing that at all. But we are very glad that we now have some um, trained uh, and skilled counselors who can really walk with folks through some very specific issues that they may be facing. So very grateful for that. All right, let's, let's look at our passage. Friends, uh, if you're here this morning, it is because you have come to a Christian church. And that means that unless you're visiting and exploring the Christian faith, those of us who are gathered here today are Christians. That means that God has saved us from our sins by sheer grace. God has lavished his love upon us. God has made us his children apart from anything that we have done ourselves. And God has accomplished this through Jesus' death and resurrection. Through the gospel, through what Jesus has done for us, God has brought us, gathered us to himself. He's made us to be his people. And God has promised us an incredible future where we will be with him in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. Friends, this very summarized message that I've given you is the good news of the gospel. And it is the defining event of every Christian's life. The aim of our series, starting today, is to show how this good news, this gospel, is made visible. It's made tangible. It's made concrete 
for us in the church and in the sacraments that God gives us in the church. Now, we're all here at church today, and we all participate in the sacraments, if you're a Christian. And because we already participate in these things, what our desire and hope is, is that we will engender a sense of greater faith, greater faith as we participate in the sacraments and in the life of the church. When I was six years old, my parents sent me to a Methodist school in South Africa. I spent 12 years there, my entire schooling career there. And part of going to this Methodist school was we had chapel services uh, various times a week, and we used to sing hymns in those chapel services, and I hated them. Honestly, I hated them. We were from a church where the music was far livelier, and we looked down our noses at all those traditional types, especially Methodists, and uh, I did not like those hymns at all. And, but, but when I was about 14, when I was about 14, I became a Christian. God saved me, his spirit filled me, and my heart was, was turned to him. And suddenly what had been dreary to me, and I thought dead and lifeless for so many years, became such a source of joy to me. I'm sure I used to sing louder than anyone else in that school for my remaining years. I thank God for those Wesley brothers, uh, for, their, for the work that they did, the hymns that they wrote, friends, to this day, I love them. Why? What happened? Something that I participated in before that I didn't fully understand or comprehend became alive to me as God opened my eyes to see the significance of what I was singing, the richness of those lyrics, and suddenly it became so precious to me. I hope and pray that over the next four weeks, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and our gatherings together as a church will become far richer to us as we participate in this wonderful gift that God has given us. And today we're going to focus on how the church is the tangible display of the gospel in our world. And in many ways, our health together as a local congregation is tied to our rootedness in this good news that has made us. And to look at this today, we'll look at a case study of how the gospel creates a church from 1 Thessalonians. Now, we have, I have only two main points in the sermon today. There are some sub-points. But the two main points are this. Number one, the gospel creates the church. And secondly, second point, the church points back to the gospel. That's our life together as, as Christians. The gospel, God's grace and work to us, creates us, makes us who we are. And secondly, our life together, how we live and what we do, points back to this work that God has done. So let's dive in. The gospel creates the church. Let's look at verse one. Paul, Paul Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one is written to the church. And this word church literally means the gathered ones or the called out ones. That's what the word church ecclesia literally means. The church, friends, is the gathering of God's people. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus uh, says, no one can come to me, no one can see Jesus and appreciate Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. What is Jesus saying? The ability for us to see him and understand who he is comes from the Father who gathers or draws us, opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. 
Now friends, this first, these first words in this passage, when Paul writes to this church, are showing us something about the church. The church is God gathering a people to himself in the church. If we think very briefly about the way that this world came to be, God made this world in creation. Adam and Eve were made to be his people, to know him and to walk with him. Sin, the Bible shows us in Genesis 3, fragments our relationships with ourselves, with one another, and with God. And Adam and Eve are cast outside of the garden. They're separated and alienated from close fellowship with God. They don't have that sense of intimacy and closeness with him anymore. But God determines to make a people for himself, to gather a people who will be his. And God does this by calling Abraham, by giving him a family. And then in the the great moment in the Old Testament, God gathers a people out of Egypt who had been slaves of Pharaoh to make them his people. And God says, I'm going to rescue you from Pharaoh's hand. I will make you my people. I will give you my word. You will belong to me. And so God rescues them out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. Now, if we think, friends, about those who were rescued out of Egypt, it's not possible to have been saved from Pharaoh and not to have come out of Egypt and not gathered together with God's people. There was no category of someone who was God's people, but still left in Egypt. To, to be saved, to have been delivered from Egypt, was to have come out and be with God's people gathered together under his word, um, functioning and living together with them. They could not have been delivered and not be gathered with God's people. And therefore, for Christians who receive God's grace and who are saved, for us, in a sense, it's not really a choice whether or not we want to join the church There's a sense, friends, in which we are saved into God's people and into the church. We are the church. Now, this is so important in our day and age because one of the massive um, influences in our day and age is individualism. And individualism seeks, along with other pressures in our day and age, to separate our private lives, and we put faith in our private lives, from everything else in the world. And faith becomes something entirely private. And the result often with Christians is that we can end up thinking, my faith is something entirely private and personal, and it really doesn't have much to do with other people. We can end up separating our faith, ironically, even from the church. But the fact that God writes and calls, the fact that the word that Jesus and God gives us for the church are the gathered ones, shows us who we are. In other words... What we see here, friends, is that to be a Christian is to be gathered to God together with his people. I'll belabor the point for another minute and then we'll move on. Let's think about it this way. In heaven, everyone who on earth was born again, had trusted in Jesus, will be gathered together before God. Revelation shows us this, gathered together as one people. In fact, this passage in verse 10 says that we, that those Thessalonians were waiting for a son from heaven. The church here, friends, are local physical gatherings here of those who've been saved by Jesus. What we do here represents that day that is to come. And this means that our gatherings as local Christians are not incidental to our faith. In fact, to push my point a little bit further, and I understand that this is challenging for some of us, I recognize what I'm saying this morning is countercultural because uh, some of us have been so affected by individualism. But it's true to say that if we aren't part of God's people here on earth, then whilst it's not technically impossible, 
it's most natural to assume that those people do not belong to God himself. All right, there's a provocative statement. So, let me assure you all. Is it possible for someone to be saved, to be a Christian, and to not be in the church, not be part of the church? Of course it's technically possible. I mean, God is abounding in mercy. God's grace flows where we do not even think it could, it, it could flow. Absolutely. Will there be people gathered one day in heaven uh, that, that were never part of a local church? I'm sure it must be possible. But when that happens, friends, we will get there and realize, oh, that was a, that was a glitch in the system. That was the exception that proves the rule. That was not the way that things ordinarily work and how God has intended for it to be. To be a Christian, friends, is to be gathered together to God with his people. So, our point of application as we, as we begin. If you're a Christian here today, have you made concrete with your body and your life what God has done in your soul already? So, but let's ask ourselves, how exactly were these believers gathered to God as the church? And so we see our, our next sub-point. The church is the gathering of those who are made God's people through the gospel. If you remember from Acts a couple of months ago, maybe a year ago now, when we were preaching through Acts 17, in Acts 17, Paul goes to Thessalonica. And Paul preaches there, and that's the church that got planted through Paul's preaching, and that's the church that he now wrote to. And Thessalon, first, uh, sorry, Acts 17 verse 2 tells us that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And in our passage, as Jacob read for us in verse 4 to 5, tells us that when the gospel was preached, the Spirit worked in them to make these people Christians. Let's read verse 4 to 5a. Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word. Sorry, we don't have the second half of that verse. Let me read it in my Bible. Not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Friends, God gathers us how? By winning our hearts. God gathers us by taking a hold of us deep within our hearts and drawing us to himself. God gathers us by showing us by his spirit that we're enslaved in our sin, and yet despite that, that he loves us, and that God has made a way through our sin by Jesus. Friends, when people come to faith, there is always some combination in coming to faith of conviction of our sin and of seeing the beauty of Jesus. These two things. Now, some people I talk to, they're not super aware of their sin. They recognize their sin is, but Jesus is just so compelling to them. Some people are highly convicted of their sin and then kind of cling to Jesus with kind of very thin faith, but just hoping that Jesus will get them through their, their own sin. There's always some combination, but these two elements are there. The sense of conviction that, that we have fallen short and sinned against God but that God has loved us and given himself to us in Christ. And so these Thessalonians here, friends, they felt deep within them a sense of, of Jesus' love, a sense of being justified before God by God's grace. And so God here is gathering people to himself at a very, very deep heart level. Friends, in fact, there is no other way 
There is no other way for us to get to this heavenly gathering except through Jesus. I once remember listening to Alistair Begg, a Scottish preacher, describing how if you think about those massive stadiums, he was, uh, he was from the UK, so he was talking about Wembley and maybe some of the football matches that are there. He says, you have a look around Wembley Stadium. There are like 100,000 people, 80,000 people there. And he says, yet every single person, it's such a huge mass, but yet every person has gone through the turnstiles one by one. Think about the MRT here in Singapore. How many millions of people ride every day? Many millions, just on the train that I go in on, it seems like. Many, many, many. And yet, friends, though there are so many, every single person is tapped in one by one by one. Friends, on that day gathered before God, where we stand before him, there are going to be countless millions and millions, maybe billions of people, friends. Such a great mass. And yet every single person would have been gathered in, drawn by God, one by one, through Jesus. Repentance of their sins, faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, this gathering by God here is so decisive that Paul uses the language chosen. We know, brothers loved by God, he's chosen you. Why why does Paul use such strong language? Paul uses this language to underline what we already saw Jesus saying, that that we are pursued by God himself. What we saw Jesus say in John chapter six. Now friends, the point of Paul using the word chose here is not to indicate that we don't have any agency as though we're like somehow dead robots and we don't respond to God. Of course we do respond to God. But to say that, that, that underneath even our response to God, even our turning from our sins and putting our faith in him is God's grace of drawing us toward him. It's another way of Paul saying, I think, that you and I here this morning, if we're Christians, we don't even get to claim credit for being Christians like, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but at least I made a good choice, you know? All those like rotten sinners outside, I mean, they could have chosen too. They didn't even do that. No, Paul's saying God's work is such a work of grace in our lives that not only does Jesus die for our sins and rise again, accomplish it all, but God himself works and draws us to himself so that we, like Paul says in Ephesians 1, give all the praise and the glory to him, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is all, all, all of grace. I was trying to think about a good analogy of this, and all I could think about was when I proposed to my wife, Taryn. I, yes, I got down on one knee. I made a choice. I asked. But at the end of the day, was this really just my choice? Friends, it may have looked like it was my choice to ask her to marry me. But when history is finally told, it will be revealed that from the moment I met her, I had no choice. I had no choice. I was swept off my feet. It looked like I was making decisions, initiating, proposing. I... I, I was lost. Just the moment I saw, I, I was completely, completely lost. And praise God for that. And in the same way, friends, as we turn from our sins, we put our faith in Jesus. Yes, friends, it looks like, of course, we, 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 are, we are consciously engaging. But God, friends, in his grace, draws us to himself by opening our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And that's what this verse says. We know, brothers, loved by God. He's chosen you. And gospel came to you not just in word, but there was a sense of conviction. Able to see that we're sinners and God's grace has come to us. Now, friends, if 
it's true that this is all of grace, then this, if this, if we're, sorry, if we're gathered in by the gospel and the gospel is all of grace, then friends, that has profound implications for what the church is like and what our community looks like. And this is our final subpoint and the point one. The church is the gathering of a diverse people who are made to be gods through the gospel. This passage tells us that these Thessalonians were very hospitable. They received Paul. They were, their lives were a testimony to others. In Acts 17 verse 4, the passage where, where Paul preaches to them shows us that the people who responded to the gospel were a diverse group of people. Let's have a look. Acts 17 verse 4, some of them, that's Jews, that's from verse 2 and 3, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Friends, one verse, we see great diversity here. They were all folded into. Now, uh, I will not go into all the diversity that we see there with the gender issues there, but friends, just trust me, Jews, Greeks, these leading women, this is a whole melting pot that would not typically have gathered together in such a way. And the reason that such a diverse group can come in, friends, is because the only criteria for entering into the church is the turnstiles of Jesus Christ. And every human being can turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And what this means, friends, the fact that this is all of grace, this should result in, in churches and in local churches, a huge amount of diversity. Diversity in race, diversity in nationalities, in ethnic backgrounds, diversity in socioeconomic status, diversity in education levels, diversity in physical conditions, those with special needs, health challenges, diversity. Because, friends, we gather here and we ask in our membership chat not what college did you go to or what's your highest level of education or what industry are you a part of. We ask, how did you become a Christian? Now, friends, the fact that the church is so diverse as a result of the gospel, let's be honest, this is incredibly beautiful and at times this is challenging as well. This is very beautiful because this displays, in theory, the social harmony that we all long for and we all know is idealistic and right. This, friends, being part of a community that's so diverse matures us, it grows us, it breaks us out of our parochial views that we have when we live just with people who are only like ourselves. Friends, every culture, every class of people has blind spots, massive blind spots, and is often self-righteous toward other groups as well. And when you get in the same room or the same community group or over a meal with someone who's so different from you and they share the same faith and you begin to learn from them, you realize some of your own prejudices, your blind spots, your ways of viewing the world that, that are just not right, that just come from only having one view. And friends, this is something that many people have said that they've loved about RHC over the years. We are not a perfectly diverse church by any stretch of any imagination, but there is some kind of diversity here. 
We have encouraged for years our community groups to be to not just think of themselves as being one age group, but to try and be mixed. I know it's not possible for all groups, but those that are part of groups where they're young <clears throat> people in their like early 20s, uni kids, and those who are far older, 50s, 60s, love that sense of diversity. We're learning from one another. People have, have spoken about how they felt welcome from a culture point of view, have learned so much about the faith from people of different cultural backgrounds and a film have, have been welcomed in. Friends, I want to encourage us that there's more for us even that, than what we have. Uh, in June, <clears throat> when I was on sabbatical, Akshay Rajkumar, one of our um, Razan partners who planted a church in Delhi, uh, came to preach for us. And afterwards, he wrote a letter to Jacob and I, but for the elders, encouraging the church and with some encouragements for us. And he says some encouraging things. And then he says, I have two reflections for you. Number one, guard your, the church's unity. And he just says, he sees unity, but just don't take it for granted. Really guard it. But then the second thing he said was this. He said, I want to encourage you to grow RHC's imagination. He's like a poet, so he's using very flowery language. Okay, But this is what he said. The Singaporean church, like, much like the Western church, is an anomaly among the nations. It's relatively more wealthy free and comfortable than churches in other nations. This can lead it to slip into an insular view of life that permits complacency to creep in. Again, I don't say this because I saw any signs of insular thinking or complacency, but as leaders, we must anticipate danger long before it comes, not after it appears. I think RHC and its members would be richer for being intentional in seeing the invisible church, the underground church, the persecuted church, the imprisoned church. I think a global experience of the church can make the local experience of RHC richer and deeper than ever. Friends, do you see what he's saying there? What he's, he's saying what we see in this passage, that this kind of diversity, when we try and break ourselves out of only seeing the faith even and life from our perspective, it doesn't weaken us or make or like dilute who we are, but it strengthens us and, and, and helps us to understand Christ and who we are in a far richer way. Now, he's talking about the persecuted church, the imprisoned church, those outside of our walls. But how much uh, so is this not also true for those of us here for us to be diverse inside of Singapore? So friends, this is, this is beautiful, and we should press on toward this. But we, have, we, we must be honest, this is challenging as well. Diversity is challenging, friends, because of sin in our own hearts, our own prejudices that we have that we often aren't even aware of. It's challenging because of negative experiences that many have had faced in their lives. So how can we grow in this? How do we help to cultivate this? Friends, we've said that the gospel is like the turnstiles that, that, let, that gets every one of us into the church. How do we apply the gospel here? I want to encourage us to think about it this way. The gospel meets us where we are. Sorry, the gospel both meets us where we are. The gospel deals with reality. And it also shows us where God is taking us. It gives us the ideal. The real is that the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus meets us exactly where we're at. Jesus enters into our brokenness. He understands our lived experience and he doesn't dismiss them. Jesus doesn't just go to all the sinners and the sufferers in the New Testament and just say, listen, pull yourself together. I've come. I'm going to die for your sins and rise again. We're going to heaven. So can you just like deal with all of your suffering and it's no big deal. No, Jesus doesn't do that. 
And Jesus sees suffering, brokenness. He enters into it. He empathizes with it. He's compassionate toward it. He grieves with those who grieve. He mourns with those who mourn. He doesn't simply dismiss it because he knows he's going to take us to heaven one day and say, oh, yeah, why are you making such a big deal out of these small things? Oh, Jesus doesn't speak English anyway, but um, <laughs> he definitely wouldn't have said that, right? But Jesus, friends, treats us in a very real way. If the gospel, friends, is going to shape our culture as a church, this means, friends, particularly for those of us who have been more privileged in the past, we cannot ignore the lived experience and the difficulties of those who struggle in this world, whether they're minorities, less educated, more humble, humble backgrounds, other challenges that they're facing. The gospel compels us to move toward, to understand, to love, to know. But this same Jesus, friends, who knows our pain, doesn't just leave us in the real. He meets us there. His grace is sufficient for us there. But he meets us there to take us somewhere, to bring us somewhere. He brings us to the ideal. What Jesus is doing, friends, is making us new together as his people. And he does that by giving you and I an identity that is deeper than our race, our education level, our socioeconomic status, or our abilities. Friends, this world often tries to celebrate diversity by making all these markers of who we are fundamental to our identity and then saying we must have representation from everyone. And let's celebrate that, the diversity. In some sense, it aims for diversity and unity by celebrating and highlighting those differences and just accepting them as they are. In the gospel, it works slightly differently. God makes us one people not by elevating all of our distinctions and making those primary about us and then saying, let's just accept everyone with these primary distinctions, but rather uniting everyone despite our distinctions in Christ and making Jesus Christ and his salvation for us the most fundamental part of who we are, our primary identity. Now, not in a way that flattens these secondary parts of us. The Bible says in Revelation uh, in Revelation, there are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So I fully assume when I get to heaven, I will be there as a white South African male who took a Singapore passport. I mean, I, that's, who, that's who I'm going to be. But that's not going to be primary about me. And some people are going to be like, man, isn't it amazing that like you, with all your history and peculiarities, got here to heaven, were saved by God's grace, and your worship and adoration is all fixed on the lamb on the throne. And I'll be gathered together with normal Singaporeans who didn't have to change their passport, and white South Africans and black South Africans and every people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it will be beautiful, but the beauty will be focused on Jesus and how Jesus has made us one in him. It does not flatten our differences, but what is primary is Jesus. Our primary identi identity is now new. Now friends, this is not easy. And we're not always gonna get this right. This is something we really have to work at as a church. Now, when it comes to issues of race, 
the majority race or those that have been privileged in the past, my encouragement is to you is to try and press into the real, the real lived experience of many of those that maybe have experiences different to the lived experiences of those who are in the majority race and not just lean into the ideal and be like, oh, you know, race means nothing in the kingdom. We're all one in Jesus. That's technically true, but if you do so, you're going to miss something of the way that God deals with us in his grace. That Jesus comes and enters into our experience and there is a real lived experience of many that's very different from those uh, because they are minorities, for example. Another way to put it is if maybe you've thought in your life that race or socioeconomic status or education is no issue at all and has never been a barrier to any relationships, that might be a sign that you, we, may need to more proactively learn about the real tensions and difficulties of people who don't have those things on the ground. Last week we had uh, Edward preaching in Mandarin. It was, a, it was a wonderful celebration for us as a church. We're planting a Mandarin church. But in hindsight, I realized I, it was my decision to do it, I could have loved our church, and particularly some of the minorities here, far better by communicating that a couple of weeks in advance, explaining it more, instead of just having the surprise of arriving on Sunday and realizing, hey, this is not what we're used to, and what's going on here, and what's the reasons? Because that experience of being excluded on the basis of language does actually get to a, a very kind of deep, experiential hurt that many people have faced. So what do we do? Say we will never do something like that again? No, not at all. We do that to celebrate Ed, to encourage people to go to Inling. We praise God for that. But we can be more sensitive. We can communicate well. We can give more notice in advance. That's one way, friends. We are all learning. Another good practice is for us as a church to not try and draw attention to our separateness, but to try and work together to always bring our relationships back to what we have in common, which is Jesus. This can be seen in the kinds of things that we talk about, where we go for lunch, after church, if we're inviting others to join us. And then for those of us in this church who can risk feeling alienated, maybe those who are much older, I had someone texting me this week saying they're in second congregation, they're like the oldest people by miles. And I was like, dude, you're only like a few years older than me. You really aren't. Uh, then I said to them, come to First Congregation. We've got a number of gray hairs uh, here. <laughs> but for those who do risk maybe feeling more alienated for whatever reason, you get to display this amazing gospel maturity by pressing into not the real and just dwelling there all the time, but pressing into the ideal and realizing, yes, that even when people inadvertently hit nerves on issues that have really been painful for you, you remind yourself, God is making us all new. There is a day coming where we will stand before Jesus and worship him. And in love, you can point out those insensitivities, as many in our church do, with grace and, and charity. And together, friends, we, we begin to grow into a, a united, diverse church that appreciates our, our, our distinctives but celebrates our unity in Jesus. Friends, I would encourage us as a church to build our relationships on the core identity that we have, that we are sinners saved by God's grace. One very simple way for us to do this is to invite someone out, someone who's different from you, and take them out with the agenda of asking them two questions, not where do you work, where did you study, where do you live? I mean, I, I actually want to make it like a challenge 
just, just try once. Invite someone from church out and like refuse. Like that question is not allowed to be asked. Okay, I'm not trying to make new legalisms at RHG. I know it's very hard and that's one way we get to know people. But maybe just once, like for one meal, just try it. But rather ask these questions. How did you come to faith? What has God been doing in your life? And have, have a conversation. Maybe through that you'll discover about their life, their history, their background, where they work. Sure, that's fine. But what, what we're trying to pursue is, who is Jesus to you? How's he become real to you? What has God done in your life? Well, that was a very long first point. Just as well, the second is so short. Secondly, friends, the gospel, the church points back to the gospel. Friends, it's very possible for us to think about the church and the gospel in, in unhealthy ways. We think the gospel gets us into the kingdom, but it's quickly forgotten about. Now it's all about our behavior. We move on from the gospel. We have our lives shaped by other things. We think the Bible is just like a manual giving us tips on how to live our best life now. We forget all about God's grace to us. Friends, this passage doesn't only show that the gospel creates a church, but that the church then points back to the gospel, reflecting it. Like a little child that looks just like his mother or her, like his mother or father. So friends, God's people begin to look like him and, and display him and what he's done for us. And there's at least two ways it does so. Very simply, let's read verse eight to nine. Paul says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. A commentary I read on this years ago said that the gospel rings out or goes out from these Thessalonians like, like thunder and lightning or thunder and by whispers, rumors. Thunder, it's proclaimed. The, your faith has uh, sounded forth from you everywhere. That one of the translations says, resounded forth from you. That's where resound gets its name. The gospel resounding throughout a geographical region. The gospel sounded forth as they've, as they've proclaimed it. But the gospel also went through, verse 9, by whispers, by rumors. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turn to God from idols. People are being like, do you know what happened to those people? Those people used to worship other idols and now they're serving Jesus. And there's this bold proclamation, Jesus died for your sins, and this like, can you believe those people live so differently? So there's two ways that the church points back to the gospel. Number one, by having it shape all we do. We've spoken about diversity already, but verse three talks about how the gospel changes our motivations, faith, hope, and love. It, verse six shows us the gospel enables us to live with joy in affliction. Now let's focus on verse 9 and 10. They turned to God from idols and they waited for the sun from heaven. Friends, one of the ways the church displays the gospel's values, the upside down nature of the values, is that we don't adopt our culture's values. We live a countercultural life. As a church, we're happy to send amazing leaders and people to plant new churches. We're happy to send people to help and strengthen other churches. We are not trying to build our own name here. Friends, no one in this church wants to be remembered as being anyone great on earth. We just want Jesus to be worshipped. We're not building a brand. We want the kingdom of God to go forward. Secondly, we live countercultural lives by receiving those that Jesus is gathering here. 
We open our homes. We open our CGs. It's a little bit unideal now, but we're waiting for Jesus to return. Come on in. There's more space. We're committed to holiness because we're Jesus's. Yeah, we, we hate sin. Hating sin now, yeah, it has some real costs in this world, but we're waiting for the sun from heaven. Friends, I'm so encouraged when I hear stories of how the gospel has changed people's hearts in our church. I was talking to someone the other day who works for a, like a, like a really, really good company and got offered a very, very senior job there. Just been promoted over the years and now got like one of the, the top jobs at a, at a very, very prestigious company. But he was telling how he's like been trying to manage with his boss for the last like six months how to decline him without offending him because he doesn't really want it because he feels if he does it, it's just going to take more time away from his family and from serving in church. And so he just says, that's not what I'm pursuing. Why, friends? The gospel's changed something inside of him. Well, think about so many here who choose to live below the standard of living that you could live at because of your generosity toward others. Those who fold others into their family through adoption or fostering. Why do they turn from these idols? They're waiting for the sun from heaven. The point is, friends, the gospels shaped their life together as a church and their lives, and this began to get spoken of. Went up like, like rumors. Do you know those people? Do you know, do you know what they're doing? Do you know the decisions that they're making? Friends, where does the gospel need to critique your lifestyle? And finally, the church points to the gospel by proclaiming it faithfully. Not just their conduct, not just how they lived, but very directly preaching the gospel, verse 8. Very directly. The word of the Lord resounded out from them. Friends, this is every member sharing the gospel at work, with family, with children. But as we've heard, the gospel is not just for those outside the walls. The gospel is for those of us inside. When we're struggling with our own sins, with feeling alienated, it shapes everything we do. So we must be, friends, explicit in declaring it to one another. So can I ask you, are you sharing the gospel? Who are you sharing it with? Friends, in conclusion this morning, we seek imperfectly, but we still seek to be a gospel people, a good news people. Friends, this church, every local church, is created by the gospel. Our health going forward will be in proportion to the level to which we hold on to the gospel and prize it and apply it to every part of our church life. Our last slide, let's see our, our first slide that we started with. The gospel creates the church, friends. The church points back. So let me ask you this morning, where are you at with the gospel today? Do you need, are you maybe not a Christian and you need to turn from your sins and believe it? Do you need to allow it to challenge your, your thinking? Maybe help you move more toward the real experience of some. We'll give you hope in the midst of your suffering of the ideal that God is by his grace slowly bringing us toward. Let's turn to him and pray. Father, we, we live in a broken world and no one knows us better than you who entered into it through your son and took all of that brokenness upon his shoulders at the cross. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to be a, a people that are shaped by your grace and your good news. We confess how quickly we forget it, but we do desire, Lord God, to be a healthier, stronger, beautiful display of your work in this world, all because of Jesus and his grace. So Father, we pray for your spirit to convict our hearts and open our eyes to his work in a richer way. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.